I, I am by, by trade an anthropologist, and it's the business of anthropologists to participate in what is going on around them, to observe what they and others do, and to describe what they've observed. All of these activities of doing or making, observing and describing, are commonly lumped together under the single rubric of what is called ethnography. And yet, they often seem to be in tension with one another. How can you both participate and observe? Isn't it like asking you to swim in the river and stand on the banks at one and the same time? And to describe, don't you have to turn away, albeit perhaps temporarily, from both participation and observation? So what I want to present to you today are the elements of an approach to creativity and perception that I and my colleagues and students have been developing in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Aberdeen, where I come from, which aims to unify the processes of making, observing, and describing in a single endeavor. And I think this approach can be described in terms, or characterized in terms of three injunctions. They are to follow the materials, to learn the movements, and to draw the lines. And in what follows, I want to elaborate on each of those injunctions in turn. In his notebooks, the artist Paul Clay repeatedly argued that the processes of genesis and growth that give rise to the forms in the world we inhabit are more important than the forms themselves. Form is the end, death, he wrote. Form giving is life. And this, in turn, lay at the heart of his celebrated creative credo of 1920. Art does not reproduce the visible, but makes visible. It doesn't, in other words, seek to replicate finished forms that are already settled, whether as images in the mind or as objects in the world. It seeks rather to join with those very forces that bring form into being. So the line grows from a point that has been set in motion just as a plant grows from its seed. Taking their cue from Clay, philosophers Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari argue that the essential relation in a world of life is not between matter and form, but between materials and forces. It's about the ways in which substances of all sorts, enlivened by cosmic forces and with variable properties, mix and meld with one another in the generation of things. So whenever we encounter matter, as Deleuze and Guattari insist, it is matter in movement, in flux, in variation. And the consequence, they say, is that this matter flow can only be followed. Now what Deleuze and Guattari call matter flow, I would simply call material. And accordingly, I recast the assertion as a simple rule of thumb, that is, to follow the materials. And to apply this rule, is to in intervene in a world that is continually, if you like, on the boil. Perhaps you could compare the world not to a museum or a department store, but to a huge kitchen. In the kitchen, stuff is mixed in various combinations, generating new materials in the process, which in turn become with, mixed with other ingredients in an endless process of transformation. To cook, containers have to be opened and their contents poured out. We have to take the lids off things. And faced with the anarchic proclivities of his or her materials, the cook 
has to struggle to retain some semblance of control over what's going on. An even closer parallel might be drawn with the laboratory of the alchemist. The world, according to alchemy, as art historian James Elkins explains, was not one of matter that might be described in terms of its molecular composition, but a world of substances, which were known by what they look and feel like, and by following what happens to them as they're mixed, heated, or cooled. Alchemy, Elkins writes, is the old science of struggling with materials and not quite understanding what is happening. And his point is that this too is what painters have always done. Their knowledge was also of substances. And these were often little different from those of the alchemical laboratory. So as practitioners, the cook, the alchemist, and the painter are not so much imposing form on matter as bringing together diverse materials and combining or redirecting their flow in the anticipation of what might emerge. Well, much has been written in recent years on the relation between persons and things, guided by the thought that the material world is not passively subservient to human design. Theorists have expressed this, however, by an appeal not to the vitality of materials, but to the agency of objects. If persons can act on objects in their vicinity, so it is argued, can objects act back, causing persons to do what they otherwise might not. So the speed bump on the road, to take a familiar example adduced by Bruno Latour, causes the driver to slow down, its agency here substituting for that of the traffic policeman. We might stare at an object, explains Elkins, with acknowledgments to the psychoanalysis of Jacques Lacan, but the object also stares back at us so that our vision is caught in a cat's cradle of crossing lines of sight. And in a precise reversal of conventional subject-object relations, Chris Gosden, sitting at the back there, <laughs> sorry, exciting you in vain, Chris Gosden suggests that in many cases it is not the mind that imposes its forms on material objects, but rather the material objects that give shape to the forms of thought. And in this endless shuttling back and forth between the mind and the material world, it seems that objects can act like subjects and that subjects can be acted upon like objects. So that instead of subjects and objects, there are quasi-objects and quasi-subjects connected in relational networks. And yet, paradoxically, these attempts to move beyond the modernist polarization of subject and object seem to me still trapped within a language of causation that is founded on the very same grammatical categories, subject, verb, object, and that can conceive of action only as an effect set in train by an agent. At best, they lead to contradiction and confusion. At worst, they have led theoreticians to make fools of themselves in a way that we would be ill-advised to emulate. I refer to a very erudite discussion on whether cat flaps have agency. <laughs> because the world we inhabit, I maintain, is not made up of subjects and objects, or even quasi-subjects and quasi-objects. And the problem lies not so much in the sub and the ob that have given rise to so much controversy, or in the dichotomy between them, as in the ject bit because the constituents of this world are not already thrown or cast before they can act or be acted upon. They are in the throwing, in the casting. 
And this point can best be illustrated, and I apologize for one or two of you in the audience who've heard of this before. It can be illustrated by means of a simple experiment that I myself have carried out with my students at the University of Aberdeen, much to the um, envy of students taking other courses. They see students taking my course, running around um, on the football field, flying kites. Uh, so using fabric, matchstick, bamboo, ribbon, tape, glue, and twine, and working indoors on tables, we each made a quick, simple, homemade kite. And it seemed as though we were assembling an object, an artifact. But as soon as we carried our creations outside, they leapt into action, twirling, spinning, nose diving, and just occasionally flying. So how did that happen? Had some animating principle magically jumped into the kites, causing them to act most often in ways that we didn't intend? Were we witnessing in their unruly behavior the consequences of interaction between, in each case, a person, a flyer, and an artifact, the kite, which can only be imagined by, but it only be explained by imagining that the kite had acquired an agency capable of counteracting that of the flyer. We might, we might describe what's going on something like this and say, well, here's the ground, here's a, a, a flyer, and up here is the kite, and here's a string from the hand of the flyer, and they say, okay, here's an interaction going on along the length of this string, Kite up here, person down here, one agent, the kite's got some agency too, and these agencies are interacting with one another, and that's what makes the kite fly. You think, well, how on earth did this agency get there? And had, had, this, had, had some agency magically jumped into the kite, um, enabling the kite to fly and counteracting the agency of the flyer? Well, of course not. The kites behaved in the way they did because at the moment we went out of doors... They were swept up, as indeed we were ourselves, in those currents of air that we call the wind. So the kite that had lain lifeless on the table indoors, now immersed in these generative currents, had come to life. So what we had thought to be an object was revealed as what we could call a thing. And the thing about things, if you will, is that far from standing before us as a fait accompli, complete in itself, each thing is a going on, or better, a place where several goings on become entwined. As Martin Heidegger put it, albeit rather enigmatically, because he put everything rather enigmatically, the thing, the thing presents itself in its thinging from out of the worlding world. It's a particular gathering together of materials in movement. So the very thinginess of the kite lies in the way it draws the wind into its fabric and in its swooping describes an ongoing line of flight. And on no account should this line of flight be confused with the line connecting the kite with the flyer. This is the line of flight. It's actually described by the ribbons that fly from the back of the kite. This is the line between the, the flyer and the kite itself. So this is the line of flight. That's the line of, um, of interaction. And you shouldn't confuse the two because lines of flight as Deleuze and Guattari insist, do not connect. They don't connect one thing with another. Like the stems of plants growing from their seeds, to return to Paul Clay's image, um, such lines trace the paths of the world's becoming. It's worlding rather than connecting up in reverse 
sequences of points already traversed. The line of flight, right, right, uh, Deleuze and Guattari, is not defined by the points it connects or by the points that compose it. On the contrary, it passes between points. It comes up through the middle. A becoming is neither one nor two nor the relation of the two. It's the in-between, the line of flight running perpendicular to both. Actually, in the footnotes of A Thousand Plateaus, Deleuze and Guattari have a, have a little diagram um, like this, A, B, and that's the, that's the connection between A and B, and that's where the line of flight goes in between. It's like saying you, the river, the water of a river does not flow from one bank to the other. It actually flows down the middle. So if this, this A is one bank of a river, B is the other bank of the river, you could build a bridge perhaps and cross over from A to B, but that's not what the water's doing. The water's going down there. And the water is describing a line of flight. It's not connecting anything to anything else. And moreover, what goes from the, for the kite in the air up here um, also goes for the flyer on the ground down here. If the kite is not endowed with an agency that causes it to act, then neither is the human flyer. Like the kite, the human is not a being that acts, an agent, but what I would call a hive of activity, energised by the flows of materials, including the currents of air, that course through the body and through processes of respiration and metabolism keep it alive. So just like the kite's line of flight, so the life trajectory of the flyer follows a course orthogonal to any line we might draw between the kite as quasi-object with the flyer as quasi-subject. So in practice, flyer and kite should be understood not as interacting entities, alternatively playing agent to the other as patient, but as interwoven threads of materials in flow responding to one another in counterpoint, alternately as melody and refrain. And both in this sense are things, and indeed persons are things too. As a hive of activity and an entanglement of material flows, every person is a living organism. So we don't need to conjure up an additional capacity installed within the organism to stand in as the cause of this activity, as though the activity were the effect of some internal agency. Indeed, I think the problem of agency is one that theorists have largely created for themselves, born of their attempt to reanimate a world already rendered lifeless by an exclusive focus on the objectness of things. I think it's striking that the more that theorists have to say about agency, the less they seem to have to say about life. And to rewrite the life of things as the agency of objects is to effect a double reduction of things to objects and of life to agency. And what I want to do is to reverse that reduction, to restore things to life, and in so doing to celebrate the creativity of what Clay called form-giving. Now, specifically, this means reversing a tendency that is evident in much writing on creativity to locate its sources, the sources of cre creativity, in images and objects rather than in actual performances. That's why creation is so often equated with innovation. Many people take, take it absolutely for granted as though if creative means innovative or they could almost use them as synonyms. 
And this equation of creativity with innovation rests on what I call a backwards reading, according to which the creativity of action is judged by the novelty of its outcomes by comparison to what has gone before, and then traced to its antecedent conditions in the form of unprecedented ideas in the minds of individual agents. So you have something, you say, this is new, this thing is the result of something that was in an agent's head, and that's where the creativity lies. Now that backwards reading is equivalent to what anthropologist Alfred Gell called the abduction of agency. Every work of art for Gell is an object that can be related to a social agent in a distinctive art-like way. And by art-like, Gell means a situation in which it's possible to trace a chain of causal connections running from the object to the agent, whereby the former, the object, can be said to index the latter, the agent. So there's an object you can see, and that is an index of the agency of the artist that is alleged to have made it. So to trace these connections, to look through the work to the agency behind it, is to perform the cognitive operation of, of, of abduction. Well, I've done another example. This is what Sherlock Holmes did. I mean, Sherlock Holmes always claimed to be a master of, uh, of deduction, but actually what he was doing was abduction because he would find a clue in the room or a footprint in the grass and be able to trace that all the way back to the original agency of the murderer who was committing the crime. And then, well, having done that, he could then tell the story forwards. And he was, in fact, doing precisely that kind of operation. Now, from the argument I've already set out, it should be clear why I believe this view to be quite fundamentally mistaken. I think it is wrong. A work of art, I would insist, is not an object at all, but a thing. And as Clay argued, the role of the artist, as that of any skilled practitioner, is not to give effect to a preconceived idea, whether it's novel or not, but to join with and follow the forces and flows of material that bring the form of the work into being. And the work then invites the viewer to join the artist as a fellow traveller to look with it as it unfolds in the world, rather than behind it to an originating intention of which it is the final product. Actually, you could argue the same thing very well about a musical performance, and perhaps I'm biased because Clay was a musician and his art is very musical, but that's the same kind of thing, that when you listen to music, you join with the performer in the uh, overall emergence through time of, of the work. In a dialogue with his son, Yves, I don't know how to pronounce that, Eve, um, himself a practising artist, the novelist and critic John Berger observed that you cannot be a mountain or a buzzard soaring in the sky or a tree in the forest, but you can become one by aligning your own movements and gestures with those of the thing that captures your attention. This is what happens, for example, in the practice of drawing, which Clay famously characterised as taking a line for a walk. Like the mountain path, the buzzard's flight, or the tree root, the drawn line does not connect predetermined points in sequence, but launches forth from its tip, leaving a trail behind it. So where the path winds, the bird flies, and the root creeps, the line follows. 
But following, as Deleuze and Guattari observed, is not at all the same thing as reproducing. Whereas reproducing involves a procedure of iteration, following involves itineration. Practitioners are itinerants, journeymen, whose works are consubstantial with the trajectories of their own lives. And it's in this very forward movement that the creativity of their practice is to be found. To read creativity forwards rather than backwards entails a focus not on abduction but on improvisation. To improvise is to follow the ways of the world as they unfold, unfold rather than to recover a chain of connections from an end point to a starting point on a route already travelled. It is, right, Deleuze and Guattari, to join with the world or to meld with it. One ventures from home on the thread of a tune. Life for Deleuze and Guattari issues along such thread lines. They are the lines of flight that I already exemplified uh, with, the, with the case of the kite. And along them, points are not connected up so much as swept up and rendered indiscernible in the current of movement. Life, in other words, is open-ended. Its impulse is not to reach a terminus, but to keep on going. But in keeping going, one may travel the same ground over and over again. In drawing, as in any skilled craft, the development of proficiency calls for repetitive practice in which novices are required to copy or imitate exemplars shown to them thereby incorporating into their own bodily dispositions the sensibilities of the masters in whose paths they follow, while, of course, simultaneously developing personal styles or voices of their own. In the Chinese art of calligraphy, for example, novices begin by tracing the shadows of the model to be copied, which is placed directly below the translucent paper on which they write. So they start off with something like tracing paper put on top of a, the model and then write on the tracing paper. In the next stage, paper and model are placed side by side, forcing novices to improvise the necessary gestures for themselves rather than, as they say, being, being guided by the shadows of the masters. And then in the final stage of learning, novices are encouraged to shake themselves loose from the master's clutching hands. In this stage, as Yuping Yen writes in her beautiful study of the power of calligraphy in contemporary Chinese society, all the learned rules are banished into oblivion and the heart becomes the only guide of the hand. But at no point in this three-stage process of enskillment do practitioners cease to copy. Every performance of a calligraphic work is a going over insofar as it is modelled on previous studies, yet every going over is itself an original movement which carries the work on, even as it follows paths already traced. And for this reason, no work is ever finished. Crescent rather than created, it cannot be contained within the bounds of a project that originates with its conception in the mind of an agent and ends with its realisation in the material. You don't start here and end there. It's just carrying on all the time. So the work 
carries on throughout its performances, none of which is the work, but all of which contribute to its never-ending generation. And in this regard, calligraphy has very much in common with the performance of instrumental music. As a practicing cellist, I have played the same movements from Bach's suite of set of suites of unaccompanied cello again and again to the despair of my family. But this is not like running off identical copies from a template, whether engraved in memory or on the score. It's not an iteration. Because in my consciousness and in my experience, the music lives on as an ever-flowing current. Each time I begin to play, I'm launched once more into the current, through which I have to feel my way, rather like a boatman feels the stream, with no assurance of how things will turn out. And it is, at every moment, a risky endeavour. Though I might recover from errors, it's impossible to go back and correct them. You can play some wrong notes, you can lose the bowing, you can go completely off, you have to somehow recover and keep going, but you can't go back and, and, and correct it. So I am, when I play, an itinerant, a wayfarer, and like all wayfarers, I have to improvise. Nor is my performance any less improvisatory to the extent that it is scored. To the contrary, the more strictly the performance is specified, the greater the improvisational demands on practitioners to get it right. Because copying is not the simple replication of pre-existing structures that it is often taken to be. People often say, you copy something, there's no creativity in that, you're just churning something over and over again, but actually there is a lot of creativity in it. Because it is not just a simple replication, on the contrary, it involves the precise coordination of perception and action. I've been trying to actually persuade in, in, in our own university, saying that, you know, we, I don't know whether you have, you probably don't have this problem in Oxford, but the problem we have in Aberdeen is our students can't, can't actually read or write when they come to university, and we have to try and get them to, to do that. And, and I, I firmly believe that one way in which we could get them to do that is to find a bit of text that we, is really beautifully written, that we really like, get them to write it out, just word for word. And all the educational theorists are appalled and say, no, no, there's no creativity in that. But actually, I think there's a great deal. So copying involves the precise coordination of perception and action, and the, pr the practitioner then has to feel where he's going and must continually adjust his or her movements so as to maintain alignment with a moving target. So any formal resemblance between the copy and the model is not given in advance but is a horizon of attainment to be judged in retrospect. I would like to be able to play Bach's unaccompanied suites like Pablo Casals. I have it on the CD, I listen to it and I try. And I'm not got there yet, but I can keep on trying. So, so the resemblance, to the extent that there's a resemblance, is something that I, I arrive at, maybe, if I'm lucky, as a result of a lot of hard work. It's not something that is given ab initio. So the, the, the resemblance between the model and the copy is, is, a, is something to be judged retrospectively. And the measure of skill lies in the embodied sensibility that enables experienced practitioners to respond with precision to environmental perturbations that would throw the performance off course were it confined to the execution of a fixed motor programme. 
That's why there's creativity even and especially in the maintenance of an established tradition. As in life itself, the important thing is that it should carry on. Now, following materials and copying movements both call for observation. But this is not the distanced and disinterested contemplation of a world of objects, nor does it result in the form formation of mental images or representations. It depends rather on an intimate coupling of the movement of the observer's attention with currents of activity in the environment. So to observe is not much so much to see what is out there as to watch what is going on. Its aim is not to represent the observed, but to participate with it in the same generative movement. Imagine you're watching a football match. You're not trying to represent it, you're trying to watch what's happening. As Yen explains, one cannot observe a work of calligraphy, let alone understand its meaning, merely by staring at it. One has to enter into it and to join in the process of its production. In other words, to be reunited with the calligrapher in his or her inked traces. Likewise, in music, one does not listen to a movement simply by hearing it played. To listen is to unite the process of one's own auditory attention with a trajectory of sound. And James Elkins makes much the same point in his comparison of the way in which the historian of art and the practicing artist might respond to a drawing. I'll just quote Elkins here. A historian, trained with books and color slides, will stand at a respectful distance and look without moving. An artist, at home with gestures, will want to move a hand over the drawing, repeating the gentleness of the marks that made it, reliving the drag of the brush or the push of the pencil. So the drawing has become its bodily response and the body moves in blind obedience to what it senses on the page. Now, I think Elkins exaggerates in describing the body's obedience here as blind, and that's something that I'll return to in a moment. But I would want to show that the exaggeration stems from a peculiar tendency, rather common amongst theorists of visual culture, and Elkins is one, to reduce vision to the interpretation of images. Thanks to this reduction, observers whose eyes, as the great Swedish geographer Torsten Hagerstrand put it, are always looking around and wondering where to go next, appear to be groping in the dark, their experience more tactile than visual. My contention to the contrary is that it is in precisely this ocular itineration along the paths of the world's becoming that the essence of vision resides. I mean, how different would all the literature on visual perception be if we'd use the word to watch rather than to see? So far from there being any contradiction between participation and observation, as is often supposed, the one in the visual as in any other sensory modality is a condition for the other. So the spectator who stands at a distance in order to make an objective study is observationally blind. But it's one thing to observe what's going on, quite another to describe it. So how can our two injunctions to follow the materials and to learn the movements be translated into practices of description? Anthropologists have long assumed 
that to describe things is to put them in writing. And it's supposed, moreover, that as an art of verbal composition, descriptive writing entails a turning away from observation. The conventional bracketing of observation and description under the rubric of ethnography obscures the fact that the production of ethnographic accounts is most often far removed from the contexts of observational engagement. So ethnographers observe in the field but withdraw to the study to describe. So the real problem with ethnography lies not in the alleged contradiction between participation and observation, because there's really no contradiction at all, but in the disconnection of the art of description from observational practice. And I'm thinking that one way to reconnect them might be to think of description in the first place as a process not of verbal composition, but of line making. And that brings me back to drawing. Drawing is a mode of description that has not yet broken away from observation. At the same time that the gesturing hand draws out its traces upon a surface, the observing eye is drawn into the labyrinthine entanglements of the life world, yielding a sense of its forms, proportions, and textures, but above all, of its movements, of the generative dynamic of a world in formation. But I think in recent anthropology, the potential of drawing to couple observation and description has been largely eclipsed by an overriding dichotomy between the written text and the visual image. And the subdiscipline of visual anthropology in particular has invested heavily in this dichotomy by setting itself up quite explicitly as an alternative to anthropology and writing. They say, as visual anthropologists, we don't write, we do something else, we make films. We write as well, but that's different. So then, if that's what visual anthropology, then the text, by default, is understood to be non-visual. I've often found this, people saying, the text, that means non-visual, doesn't it? Film, that's visual. Text, non-visual. But how can this be so? I mean, is not reading a practice of observation, just as much as the observation of a work of calligraphy or of drawing? Does not the reader use his or her eyes? And if she doesn't, why should every scholar wear spectacles? Indeed, the only way to sustain the illusion that the written text is non-visual is to suppose that the visual has nothing to do with observation in the world and everything to do with the perusal of images. Thus, no images, no vision. Seeing, then, is not about eyes looking around in the environment, but about the opening up to a domain of images. And with this, we re return to the peculiar presupposition of Elkins that I mentioned a moment ago, namely that eyes that look around but which do not open up to images are blind. It's a very strange idea. It's if you're crossing the road and like a good person, you look left, right and left again before crossing the road, uh, you don't actually see any of the cars that would otherwise run you down because they don't actually, don't actually remember what they look like and they haven't left any lasting image. Therefore, you didn't see them. So you blindly cross the road even though you did look left, right and left again. So it's a very strange kind of argument. Elkins is convinced that whatever is not fixed in memory in the form of what he calls a final image, we simply fail to see. 
Likewise, the ethnographer's eye in Anna Grimshaw's influential book of that title turns out to be not so much an organ of observational engagement as an instrument by which moments of such engagement can be fixed, framed, and returned to the viewer for subsequent inspection. That's what the camera does, of course, and we soon realise that the eye of Grimshaw's allegory is in fact a camera. It is, in her terms, an image-based technology, a tool for registering the fullness of our vision of the world in an instant and rendering it back to the viewer. So the visual in visual anthropology, and indeed in visual theory more general, generally, could be defined as vision rendered back in the forms of the visible. And in this regard, visual theorists practice a conceit that exactly parallels the conceit of literary theorists, namely that in the written text, the world is played back to the reader. But drawing subverts the assumptions that underpin the polarity of text and image. Its lines neither solidify into images nor compose themselves into the static forms of the printed text. They don't capture the world in its totality and render it back to the viewer or reader, but they are rather carried forward in real time, in concert with the movements of the worlding world, in an ever-unfolding relation between observant eyes, gesturing hands, and their descriptive trace. Indeed, it's no accident or oversight that a visual anthropology that has so much to say about the camera has virtually dismissed the pencil. In one of the only contributions to the burgeoning literature in this field to give any credit to drawing, Ana Isabel Afonso and Manuel Yao Ramos deplore the willingness of visual anthropologists to cast aside the humble and handicrafty pencil in their haste to embrace the latest in digital imaging technologies. It's a mistake to think that the camera does the same as a pencil, only faster, or that the photographic image achieves the same as the drawing, only with greater accuracy, because the pencil is not an image-based technology, nor is the drawing an image. It is the trace of an observational gesture that follows what is going on. The camera interrupts this flow of visual manual activity and cuts the relation between gesture and description that lies at the heart of drawing. Nor is it an accident or an oversight that an ethnography that claims, in the idiom of James Clifford, to be graphocentric does all its writing on a keyboard. Because what the camera does for drawing, the keyboard does for writing. Its effect is to transform the meaning of description from a scribal practice in which the writing hand leaves a continuous trace that is always responsive in the quality of the line to conditions as they unfold, to a practice of verbal composition in which the aim is to render an account wherein every word is chosen for its fit within the totality. So a return to drawing is also a return to handwriting, replacing the rigid opposition between image and text with a continuum of scribal practices or processes of line making, ranging from handwriting through calligraphy to drawing and sketching, with no clear points of demarcation between them. 
So let me conclude by returning to my earlier example of playing the cello. Holding the bow, I bring it into contact with the strings. But where then is the music? Does it lie somewhere in between me, my bow, and the cello? Does it begin with a sound image in my mind and end in the reverberations of the instrument? Surely not. Rather, the point of contact between bow and strings is the site from which the music pours forth. Likewise, calligraphy pours forth from the site of contact between brush and paper. So the movement of making doesn't lie in the relation between one thing and another, between the mental image and the material object, but in a movement orthogonal to this relation, on the one hand of imagining and on the other of material flow. And this is the movement of life itself, and it's the creativity of this movement in improvisation rather than abduction that I've sought to recover. Thank you very much.